Well, welcome to the Argus Hydrogen and Future Fuels podcast. I've got a pre-warned listeners that I fled my screaming kids for this podcast, but there is work going on in the building in the Singapore Land Tower today, so apologies for any noise. Regardless, I am joined today by Andy Marsh, President and CEO of Plug Power. Andy, welcome. Well, thank you, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here, I guess, this <laughs> evening for you. <laughs> exactly. So before we start, can you tell listeners in 20 seconds what Plug does? Plug create the first market for hydrogen fuel cells in the world and are creating the whole hydrogen ecosystems from generating hydrogen, from delivering it, and probably just as important, using the hydrogen in mobility applications. Thank you. So I appreciate the context. You know, acquisitions have been a massive part of Plug's strategy since 2000, what, say 18, uh, probably before I started watching you, actually. Can can you lead us through what you've bought since you bought fuel cell supply in-house via Energy Ore in 2019? Sure. I'm going to just take just a minute to take a kind of step back. Mm. When we developed the first market for hydrogen fuel cells, I can remember, which is putting fuel cells in the forklift trucks, which isn't the sexiest market in the world, Tim. <laughs> but, but I was in a meeting with Walmart around 2011, and you know I was told by our contact that they would never buy anything from us unless we figured out how to build fueling stations and delivering hydrogen. And since then, you know, we did learn. We and we've ended up shipping 50,000 fuel cells, built 185 hydrogen fueling stations. But during this journey, what I've really come to learn and what the company's come to learn, which is more important, is that how critical hydrogen is and cost effective hydrogen that build out all the potential applications for fuel cells and actually hydrogen in industrial processes, too. Mm. So when you start thinking about all our acquisitions pre-2018, it all had to do with vertical integration from a how to build a fuel cell. And that came from we made an acquisition to buy a stack company in Spokane, Washington, that we leveraged in the products. We bought a small company, which was founded by experts from General Motors, which allowed us now to build the first largest gigafactory in the world to make MEAs. And that really became the foundations to how we manufacture and support our fuel cell products. And really, since 2020 and COVID hit, we've been on a streak of making strategic <laughs> acquisitions, especially in the hydrogen ecosystem. Yep. So we went out and bought a company which was renowned for making electrolyzer stacks. This is Gina, isn't it? This is Geener. Yeah. They, yep. you know, you know, they flew in space. They get went under the water and we really, you know, were focused on commercializing them. So we bought them and brought them in the house with the goal of being the electrolyzer business, leveraging our fuel cell technology. But we also could start building plants and we did that. We bought the first company in the world to build an independent liquid hydrogen station, which wasn't one of the big majors. That was, so was United, that United Hydrogen, if I remember. You know the history well, Tim. That's United Hydrogen. And then, you know, we thought that adding some expertise to let us do large-scale plants and also give us a bigger position in Europe, we went and acquired Frames, which uh, was an expert in oil and gas building out uh, large projects for people like Shell Oil. You know, mm. so many of the skill sets required for electrolyzers and fuel cells you can find in traditional industries. 
So we yep. made that acquisition and that actually gave us a footprint and back office in India too. That was about 300 people. But you know, Tim, uh, we didn't stop there. We had to deliver this hydrogen and we found that one of the strengths in the industry was availability of liquid hydrogen trailers. So we bought a company in Texas called Applied Cryotech, which, you know, going to help us, you know, when we looked at the economics by buying them and saving the gross margin dollars, it really paid for itself. And finally, we're a big believer that liquid hydrogen will have a place in the future. And that certainly a big place in the plants we're building today. And we acquired a company called Jewel, which was expertise in building equipment for turning natural gas into liquid natural gas and the similar technologies needed for hydrogen to make liquid hydrogen. And yep. so I think I hit on all the acquisitions <laughs> in the last five years, Tim. If I forgot anything, let me know. So, I mean, I guess one question to ask you is, uh, you said you see liquid hydrogen having a place. There have been some recent studies done, as you will be aware, just pointing to the greenhouse gas forcing potential of, of liquid hydrogen. And I suppose the question is, do you see liquid hydrogen's use being best employed in short throw transportation, basically from production site to customer within, what, say, 250 miles or something like that? Actually, no, Tim. And I, I'm going to take a step back. You know, first, those studies are really complicated. And I can tell you, we've looked at work done by UC Irvine, and I actually have people at UC Irvine today who are experts in this. You know, I would say that in general, the report out of Cornell, I think there's some serious doubts. That being said, we take this serious. And I can tell you today in the plants I build with liquid hydrogen, I actually recycle that outgas. We don't, you know, if you look at venting. You're right. You're right. You look at an Amazon plant. I actually capture that gas that would vent into the atmosphere and actually use it. So we have a closed loop system that captures that hydrogen that would vent. So I I'm, guess I'm not as concerned and we're working and, you know, we're engaging, but there are ways to mitigate. And if it is an issue and it's not really clear yet, this is really complicated chemistry. Well, it's, it's fantastic to hear for generation one, if you're looking at uh, preventing uh, venting at this stage for that, as I say, that first generation production sites, that, that's very good for the future. Because obviously, <laughs> if we can get ahead of a potential yeah. problem before it becomes a problem, that's all to the good. That is all to the good, Tim. And Tim, I, you know, I'm going to give you my view of how hydrogen should be moved and stored. I think, as many in your audience know, you know, even though Plug is a global company, my home turf is the United States. And if you think about where, for example, there's lots of excess wind power, is in places like Wyoming. And you can see, and there's work going on today, how you could build hydrogen pipelines through areas where there's right-of-ways today, from Wyoming to Texas, Wyoming to California, could use pipelines. And that way you could transport hydrogen at one-fourth the cost you could with liquid and one-twentieth the cost if you're trucking gas. So that's really, I think, pipelines uh, are critical for, I would say, within a geographical landmass. Liquid's going to be used, is going to be critical for moving hydrogen where pipelines don't exist. But also taking pipelines, and you mentioned this, for maybe the last 100, 150 miles to deliver it where it needs to go, but also for storage. 
Whereas liquid hydrogen, you can store about four or five times more energy than you can in its gaseous state. So, you know, we really think that's valuable. For traveling from Chile to uh, North America or Australia to South Korea, we actually think green ammonia is the right answer, where you combine hydrogen, green hydrogen, with nitrogen to create green ammonia. So that's how I think about the ecosystem. And look, Tim, I learn every day like your listeners and come across new ideas and think about these issues. But that's really kind of my current view of how this world will evolve. So it's, um, it's been a frenetic couple of years, as you say, for the acquisitions. Is your capability tree well filled out now or are you still still on the hunt? I would say we're always looking. Mm. And you could sit back today and say pretty confidently, we have most of the blocks, if not all the blocks filled in. Yep. That being said, we're always thinking about areas where we could increase our expertise and, you know, enhance our business for all the stakeholders in plug power. So, you know, I'm not, you know, and I've been pretty public, for example, about class A trucks that I you know, mm. heavy-duty trucks, that we give that a lot of thought. And you know, we have a wonderful relationship with Renault in France and how we think about the last mile and where fuel cells and hydrogen fit in. But, you know, I think that's probably an area that we'll continue to explore. And if we find the right partner with the right business model, as we did with Renault, where, you know, we provide the fuel cell and hydrogen generation technology, they provide the vehicle. They have great sales channels. We have good sales channels. I think the combination like that make a great deal of sense to me. Yeah. So obviously I've watched you for years. Uh, you mentioned the forklifts earlier uh, and those indoor material handling uses uh, with Amazon and Walmart and, uh, and customers like that. So uh, you mentioned the mobility markets. What other markets are you feeling demand from for fuel uh- cells? Oh, so you mentioned fuel cells, and I'm going to step back and mention hydrogen, because one of the key, Tim, is that when you look at the CO2 footprint of all the mobility applications, it's about the same as industrial processes. So we have a great deal of work looking to substitute green hydrogen into manufacturing green steel, You know, an issue that's a very hot topic around the world today mm-hmm. is a Fertilizers. You know, I was talking about non-sexy markets uh, three months ago. If you told me fertilizer would be a uh, exciting market, but I think today with what everything going on in Ukraine, people recognize the criticality of fertilizer in the food ecosystem. And so we're doing this large project with the Roscom, one of the largest manufacturers of fertilizer in the world in Cairo, which is going to be shown off at COP27, where we're taking, we're substituting gray hydrogen for green hydrogen, that gray hydrogen, which was made from natural gas, to green hydrogen generated via green electricity to produce green ammonia, which will be a feedstock for a fertilizer. So you start looking at all that. Those are markets which aren't headline markets, but what I find fascinating about those markets, Tim, is you can substitute today. That's some, you don't have to put a new truck on the road. You don't have to build new technology. You can make, you can address the CO2 footprint today of so many chemical processes by just migrating to green hydrogen. So you have those apps. When you think about mobility, uh, 
There's things like uh, we've been involved in trains. We've been involved in uh, airport ground support equipment, obviously delivery vans, forklifts. <laughs> Planes, trains, and automobiles. <laughs> yes, yes, you're right. And John Candy was always one of my favorites. So, uh, Tim, yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose I should ask then. So you touch upon a couple of things there. The first one, oh, how will I ask this then? So you mentioned, obviously, steel, fertilizers, and chemistry, and obviously uh, the hydrogen industry as it stands today. These are sort of your typical hard-to-abate sectors. And then to the side of that, we also have what I would call diesel displacement. So I guess when I say something like that, I'm thinking about data centers getting away from diesel generator backup. Airport handling and logistics is obviously very close to sort of, uh, what would you say, distribution centers in a way. And then mining trucks. Uh, you were involved. Angie selected, a, I think, Plug Power's fuel cell for their their, their hydrogen-powered uh, haul truck, which is the world's biggest. And so those, those seem somewhat disparate um, markets. Do you, do, how do you view those? Because, as I say, one's a hard-to-abate market. Would you regard yourself as a, a seller of electrolyzers and fuel cell solutions to them versus an end-to-end solution for diesel displacement? Well, it's a lot packed in that question. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, let me take a step back. You know, I always think about customers first. Mm. And, you know, if I think about fertilizer market, I can be two things for customers. One is... I can sell them the, the electrolyzers and operate the electrolyzers for them to generate the green hydrogen for their process. I can do the same for companies like Philip 66 for uh, oil exploration, uh, mm. where hydrogen is critical. But I also can, with those customers, actually just sell them the hydrogen, maybe even build a plant on their site, which would feed them the green hydrogen and they can replace the gray hydrogen. That's a portion of plugs business. Another portion is all these apps where we can provide and you know what the the items that really slow down the applications is actually the availability of green hydrogen. And so that's really one of the drivers that we talked about earlier in this discussion. So with people like SK, we're actually looking by 2024 to have a 400 megawatt fuel cell plant that uses hydrogen in Korea to put electricity on the grid. We're doing a and lot that's of- that's scheduled to go into, I think it's Incheon, is that right? Actually Incheon, that is correct. Yeah, yeah. That oh, is good stuff. Pretty exciting. And you know, yeah. Tim, and you mentioned data centers and uh, you know, we're working with the three major data center providers in the world in replacing diesel engines with fuel cell based products that look exactly. And this is where I think you were kind of going is that even though they look like, boy, on road vehicles, big scale backup for data centers, stationary products for uh, SK, boy, they all look different. But when you get to the heart of it, they're all using the same basic fuel cell technology that mm. we developed for material handling. And now it's being spread off out across all sorts of applications. The MEAs, which are the critical component, are made in the same factory, off the same production line. Uh, the assembly techniques for the unit that goes into a Renault product is with Hyvea is almost exactly the same as the same product that uh, goes into the SK. So, you know, it's really thinking through design platforms. And, and Tim, when you go think about the world of diesel engines, boy, it's very similar. You know, the diesel engines that they use to back up a telecom system aren't, you know, which may be 10 kilowatts 
aren't yep. really that dramatically different than a one megawatt from an architecture point of view. Just, I guess it's the same for distributed power as well. I just did a podcast with Octopus Hydrogen, who are very interested in the uh, construction plant sector as well. It's very similar uh, application, as you're saying. Very similar applications. And that's how I think about the world. And to make these, you know, so you've got a basic platform. And to make this all work, you need to have green hydrogen. And obviously, uh, I've probably made that point over and over in this interview. <laughs> so that's, uh, we've talked about stationary power. We've talked about uh, mobility. One thing that I wanted to ask you, actually, was uh, obviously you're, you're, you're into the mobility side from mining trucks to, uh, to forklifts to um, uh, you've got the uh, you've got the venture with uh, Renault in, uh, in, in Europe. What about marine markets? That's an area that's uh, seeing a huge amount of interest. And I don't think I've seen anything from Plug on that. Is that something that's slightly outside of what you're looking at or, or have I missed something? We have not made an announcement there yet, Tim. Certainly. Okay, certainly the technology is applicable we have done a lot of work associated with the and this is more forward looking i think you've seen our work you mentioned airplanes and you know we're doing a lot of work with folks like airflow and universal hydrogen where we're looking to leverage our fuel cell technology very similar what we do to stationary products into those applications the only big difference is, one, I think it's further out for scale, mm. but we actually are using it as really our forward-looking technology platforms to move our technology beyond where it is today, to be smaller, to be more efficient, and having a um, application where price points may be higher and performance points, may, performance expectations are higher allow you to do a good deal of technology development with an application that uh, really needs that technology. And ultimately, as you perfect that, you can start moving that down and lower costs, lower the cost. You can start moving that down in other applications. And, and look, I've been in the power business my whole life. It's always been smaller, lighter, more efficient, <laughs> more reliable. And it goes from everything to building plant for uh, telecom systems to airplanes to cars. All that virtual loop is really doesn't change. And that's really what we're trying to do with the work we're doing with universal hydrogen to push that down into other applications ultimately. So we've talked about hydrogen leaving the warehouse. It's also leaving the country. So it's moving into international supply chains. And you've touched on that already. You've been internationalizing the business um, over the last couple of years. We've got, um, obviously, there's the relationship with Fortescue. Um, and I think completion of that uh, facilities sometime next year. Is, is is that on track? That is on track. And, um, you know, the, the factory we're building with Fortescue should be completed by year end and in a great position to provide electrolyzer stacks. And it is purely electrolyzers that that one's doing, not fuel cells and electrolyzers? Today, it's purely electrolyzers, Tim. There's enough yep. volume there for elect- electrolyzers that, you know, that's the primary focus. And Fortescue is looking, you know, we were touching on these items to help turn Australia into a great exporter of green ammonia. Yeah. Uh, that green ammonia could be used to run in uh, gas turbines, which exist in Korea today or in Japan, as mm. well as powering long distance ships. I think green ammonia, when you're thinking about, I think we touched on this earlier in the conversation, 
moving goods internationally is a real viable solution. So that's um, yeah, that's the Fortescue side of things. Um, SK Group we, we've talked about. I had a question. You mentioned it's going to be around 400 megawatts in capacity. Will its output ma- mirror your New, New York facility, where I believe you are splitting things between um, producing fuel cells and electrolyzers for a, a, I think it's a nameplate gigawatt, isn't it? So, um, and I, I, Tim, I, I may confuse you a little there. Oh so, no. <laughs> so let you know in New York. You know, we have a factory that can produce 2.5 gigawatts of MEAs for either electrolyzers or for fuel cells. So in South Korea, we will be doing two things. One is we will build a similar facility like that with SK, which Mm. will use to build 400 megawatts of stationary products. So primarily their fuel cells. We, we could. And there will be the flexibility to make electrolyzer MEAs there. But that's really kind of how one should think about it. Yep, understood. Fuel cell focused. Uh, and I think your groundbreaking schedule for 2024 there. You've established a, a European headquarters in Germany. Is it likely that the continent will see a manufacturing facility from plug there as well? Yeah. And I should actually, I think the answer to that question is certainly yes, Tim. Uh, as part of the Hyvea JV, but also I think you'll see us expand beyond that. But I also should add, you know, we have over, we have a large facility via our frames acquisition in the Netherlands with well over uh, 150 people at that facility. So, you know, we probably have close to 300 people in Europe today and more yep. if you include the JVs that we have with Axiona, the generation green hydrogen. As well as Renault for Hyvea. So, uh, we continue to expand our European footprint. I mean, tonight I actually get the, I can tell you how European I am, Tim. I get to go <laughs> to the Belgium embassy for, uh, dinner tonight with the ambassador. So, uh, they, they're beginning to think of me as a Europe, just a fellow European. I'll spoil the surprise. It's going to be waffles. Um, <laughs> can I ask, um, let's bring it closer, closer to home. You, you know, U.S. hydrogen. When we're looking at hydrogen hubs, U.S. West Coast and Houston were obvious hubs. Where else do you see is upcoming for the sort of hydrogen hub strategy within the U.S.? So yesterday I was in Charleston, West Virginia, home of Senator Manchin. And I can tell you there is a, you know, I met with Senator Manchin, the uh, head of economic development in West Virginia. And West Virginia is also another area that's laser focused on receiving one of these probably up to eight hydrogen hubs in the U.S. Mm. And there's lots of work going on in the fossil fuel states, Tim, about how hydrogen is the best technology to transition them from either coal or oil states to hydrogen states. Mm. And lots and lots of work going on in West Virginia. As many of your audience know, Plug's home is home headquarters is in New York. And I can tell you, we're working very closely with New York for a green hydrogen hub, which will extend from Ohio to New York to Connecticut to Massachusetts, all a regional hub, uh, which is being positioned to deliver purely green hydrogen for applications that need green hydrogen. 
So I think if I was a betting man, I think you'll see one in California. I think you hit it on the head. I think Houston, with its expertise in hydrogen generation today, especially blue hydrogen, will mm-hmm. certainly be a hub. I think West Virginia will be a hub, which will fully support, as well as New York, which we are fully supporting. But I should also add, we're actually engaged in you know all the hubs you mentioned. Plug is actively engaged in. There's actually 30 applications that have been put in for hubs so far. Okay. So yeah. it's, a, it's a big push. I, I think there'll be greater clarity by the end of this year where these hubs will be. And, and do you see any, any barriers to the swift rollout of these uh, U.S. hydrogen hubs? Is, is funding coming quickly enough? Um, what could hold this up or speed things up? I think that uh, speed's always relative. I think that the government has done a good job in outlining the requirements for the hubs. I think many of the applicants like New York and West Virginia and Houston and California are giving, putting really together thoughtful, extensive responses. You know, I think that uh, for the hubs to be the most successful, you really want to think through how you can bring in more and more apps to support the hubs as well as thinking through how you can expand the government money for the hubs with Wall Street money. And, you know, I think that uh, $8 billion seems like a lot of money, but if you can start leveraging Wall Street, if you can start leveraging all sorts of other companies, I think that $8 billion could become $40 billion, and yep. U.S. could become, the, with that platform, I think U.S. would be, clearly one of the global leaders in the deployment of hydrogen. So, I mean, yeah, the, the U.S. is it's surprisingly cost competitive, put it that way, on hydrogen. I think when everyone looks around, you're expecting to see somewhere in the Middle East or in a desert as being, you know, at, at leading edge of uh, cost of production. The U.S. does very, very well uh, on that metric. And you know why? Because if the sun shines a lot in many places and the wind mm. blows and the cost of renewable electricity is, incredibly competitive here in the U.S. versus Europe and other places. Yep. And it's also pretty cheap cost gas as well compared to compared yeah. to near neighbors like Europe. I wanted to ask about the decarbonization of, of hydrogen production within the U.S. context as well. So I, I'll start off close to home with you. United Hydrogen's facilities are gray. And so I think there's something like 10, 11 kilograms of carbon for each one of hydrogen. Are you planning to add abatement to these or are you planning to replace them, I suppose, ultimately via green hydrogen? Real interesting question, but there is a way to turn that into green. So uh, if you look at the process, we we receive hydrogen waste stream from Owen Corporation, which is, in, you know, has a one of the largest producers of chloralkali. Mm. And if you look at the processes used by that, it's essentially a large chloralkali electrolyzer. What we're looking to do with Owen is to actually change the energy feeding that electrolyzer from gray from coal to green. And mm. the process is green, the outgas is green. So the carbon footprint of United Hydrogen's facility in Tennessee dramatically changes overnight. Yeah. And that is the approach we plan to use with Owen. And we plan to do the same thing with them in the plant we're putting in place in Louisiana. And we'll start with cleaning up the chloralkali process by feeding it with electricity that's green to start. And yep. the gas will be green. 
And how much could that take down the carbon intensity of production? Just ballpark. Oh, it almost takes it down to zero, Tim. I suppose the other thing that people are also looking at with uh, SMRs is feeding them with a different feedstock, renewable natural gas. I've seen that mentioned a few times for existing uh, facilities too. Um, the, sa- the same sort of concept, Tim. Yeah, yeah. So I think that the item, you know, when you think about renewable natural gas and you think about chloralkaline streams, quite honestly, there's limits to how much both of them are available. And mm. that's ultimately why electrolyzers are so critical. I mean, so as you know, uh, you're in Singapore and, you know, in Indonesia, you know, as the issues with cutting down the forest and for the production of renewable diesel has had some issues. So mm. you really got to think through that whole, you know, where are the source, where's the feedstock? And, yep. Yep. you know, the, the nice thing about green electricity is that, uh, the sun probably has a few billion years of life yet left, so um, it should be around for a while. So the other thing is that so we're talking about your facilities there, but what about for other people as well? Decarbonizing hydrogen production itself has become a priority in the EU. Is that uh, also a priority in the US? Is it an increasing priority? We'll see. If you look at, you know, first I'm going to take a step back, Tim, and the U.S. probably um, operates a little bit different than the rest of the world. If you go to any college graduation in the U.S., uh, you'll see sustainability front and center. Mm. So much of what we do in the U.S. is driven by consumers. And it's why people like Amazon and Walmart have these net zero commitments, because, you know, Look, they're good companies. They want to do the right things, but their customers are going to demand it. You know, it's been instilled in the gen, this generation that sustainability is important to save the earth. I think on top of that, it can be accelerated by government policy. And Mm. certainly the hubs are one policy that will help accelerate it. But another critical item, and I had this discussion with Senator Manchin yesterday, which he great strongly supports is a production tax credit for green hydrogen, as was done for the wind in- industry, to really accelerate the usage of green hydrogen. And with a $3 per kilogram tax credit that's being proposed, and look, I, I think there's a good chance it'll happen before the August recess here for the U.S. Hmm. Senate, that not only will the U.S. have the consumer poll, They'll have government policies coupled with the, the strength of Wall Street, which helped accelerate the wind and solar industry, mm-hmm. to really be able to let the U.S. be really uh, the leader globally in uh, hydrogen and fuel cells. And I think you need that combination of consumer pull, government policy, company commitment, the strength of Wall Street, which is one of our real advantages as a nation, to really make this all work. It's quite exciting, actually, just watching uh, America at the moment, because I suppose you're just starting to see the offshore wind industry really starting to get going. It really feels like it's starting to get some momentum. I wanted to say, I suppose a lot of people are focused on 2030, which is now only seven and a bit years away. Uh, <laughs> not far. With wars and deglobalization, we've got a potential recession in view. Do, do you think that the rapid development... Of, of the hydrogen industry, do you think it faces material risk or is the private sector, which you've just been speaking about, whether it be Wall Street, whether it be private enterprise, is it now so so spun up that there's broad based momentum, do you think? I think there's broad based momentum, Tim. And I think the item, the one item you mentioned when it came comes to 
the war in Ukraine. I think, I mean, you saw this week the policies adopted by the EU. I think to cut uh, oil imports from Russia by 90 percent. Mm. But I think there's a greater theme there. I think us in the liberal democracies have recognized that we can't trust authoritarian governments and that we need, you know, all our economies are dependent upon energy. Uh, we all need to uh, have a level of energy independence so that uh, we can't be blackmailed by these dictators. And I think our commitment, you know, in the Western world and, the, you know, as well as places like Singapore, Japan, Australia, South Korea and others to make sure that Russia can never do this again for any authoritarian power. I think clean energy, there's no better way to have energy independence and have your own wind farms, your own solar farms, or have friendly neighbors who you're trading with Mm. that you trust. And uh, I think that's, I I think that will trump any short-term issues. So final question, you're involved in local, how would you say, continental decarbonisation efforts. Do you see the development of carbon intensity classifications as more key to the growth of, say, international trade or just a compellingly low cost of production versus imports? Which do you see as most key? (laughs) Wow. I think that the more, by the way, I, I'm not a purist, Tim. I think that uh, there's many solutions that are required across the board, from batteries to heat pumps to fuel cells to hydrogen, that are required. I think that the best way to move forward would be, and I'm going to call it a uh, global tax on carbon. And I know that's, mm. you know, something where people like the U.S. and Singapore and South Korea and Australia agree on a pricing level. I actually think if markets aren't very good at thinking about the long term, if markets do some great things, but there's externalities that the market doesn't price in. Mm. And I think uh, instead of governments worried about whether hydrogen's the right solutions or batteries or heat pumps, if carbon was priced appropriately, I think a lot of these decisions will uh, pay for themselves. I, I can remember back in 2006 that you know folks were talking about solar and wind. And I can remember an Arnold Schwarzenegger quote about renewable energies gives you jobs, it gives you reduction in CO2, and it gives you energy independence. And, you know, ironically, 16 years later, he was right. And uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, uh, and a price on CO2 around the world, which is consistent, I think would uh, take things a long way. I'll tell you something crazy, actually. I think The Naked Gun, two and a half, if you can think back that far, <laughs> uh, an old comedy film, that was yep. uh, that, that discussed renewable energies. Uh, and that's in a mainstream film. Yeah, in 1992, I think it was. So it's incredible how long it's taken to get here in some ways, but hasn't it come quickly suddenly? Tim, my father worked at General Electric. We had solar panels in, the, in our house in 1964. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, we better wrap this here. I could go on talking, but uh, we, we've got to stop. Andy, it was an absolute pleasure having you on. I hope you've even enjoyed yourself a little. I, Tim, I always enjoy myself when I get to talk about <laughs> plug hydrogen and fuel cells so thank you for the opportunity today no problem argus hydrogen and future fuels will return 